Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Felix Behrenskötter, senior lecturer in international relations at SOAS University of London and board member of the EISA. Welcome to this episode of Voices. My name is Felix Behrenskötter. I'm based at SOAS University of London and currently also a member of the EISA Governing Board. This podcast offers a conversation on the topic of decolonizing knowledge with a focus on the academic field of international relations. We chose this topic because it is an important and also difficult agenda of addressing biases and silences in knowledge production. It's an agenda of challenging orthodoxy, hegemonic epistemologies and their colonial legacies and adding new voices, perspectives and practices. So it really goes to the heart of what we do as academics, our research, our teaching, even our hiring practices. But it is not straightforward. It, it, it does attract controversy and misunderstandings. And so to unpack and address what decolonizing knowledge is about, what it entails, the challenges it involves, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Mira Sabaratnam. Mira is currently a reader in international relations at SOAS and for many years has been an active voice in the decolonizing knowledge campaign at SOAS, including the chair of the Decolonizing SOAS Working Group and co-author of a learning and teaching toolkit that supports course conveners in thinking through the issue and its principles. Since this toolkit was published five years ago, it has been adopted and discussed also in other institutions. And indeed, Mira has been active in advancing the agenda also outside source, including in museums and other places. So there is a lot of experience and expertise here today with us, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Mira, to Voices. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Maybe the first question I would like to ask is, why are we seeing calls for decolonizing knowledge in academia today, or especially growing over the last decade? Probably the most important thing in terms of the growth over the last decade were the conversations sparked by the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa. So the student protests that exploded really in late 2015 um, resonated with a lot of issues that people had been talking about for some time, but that really gave it a lot of momentum. And you saw um, campaigns, at least in the UK context, for uh, Roads Must Fall Oxford. You had a UCL Uh, campaign, Why is My Curriculum White? You had people talking about the Eurocentrism of the curriculum and so on. And so that linked up with a lot of conversations that had already been going on in formerly colonized countries and settler colonial states on what it meant to decolonize knowledge. 
And this is part, of course, of a bigger conversation about democracy, justice, history, and so on. And where, though, does the agenda come from? Where does the ambition come from? It grew over the last 10 years, you said, linked to a lot of these specific campaigns and and uh, activities. But there's a broader epistemological issue at heart here, right? Where, what What is that? So I think where a lot of these movements would agree is on the on the idea that the way in which we understand the world through the traditions of, let's say, social sciences or the arts and humanities as they have developed in the Western Academy has reproduced a lot of the biases um, that colonialism also incorporated. So about the inferiority of peoples, their incapacity, their uh, lack of civilization or their lack of uh, culture and these kinds of ideas. So we've inherited these biases. And although people have tried to challenge them over time, we've never really got rid of them. And so they kind of are condemned to reproduce themselves. And a lot of people who are critical of these biases see this as a common problem across the epistemological framework in many uh, social science traditions um, and other spaces. And they're trying to find ways to either find other ways of studying and researching or find other ways of talking about what we are looking at uh, and indeed looking at phenomena that we don't even look at, that we don't even think are important. So that's where they um, agree, I would say. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we get into the more concrete details of you know this agenda and its approaches, um, can you say why and how you became involved in this? Yeah, I mean, I think I came to even the idea of post-colonialism quite late in my academic uh, pathway. I was doing my PhD about uh, international state building in Mozambique, and I was finding these patterns of practice and behavior that the existing literatures just didn't give me a language to talk about. And I was really confused. I was talking to my supervisor. He said, you probably want to go and read some post-colonialism. Uh, this was Mark Hoffman at the LSE. And he lent me this big book, like the post-colonial reader, and I just kind of consumed it. And from that moment on, I've been so interested in this problem and this question um, at lots of different levels, at the level of theory in terms of like what we identify as the key issues, at the level of methodology, how we practice our fieldwork and how we, you know, organize uh, knowledge in our studies. And then, you know, all of the things that come out of it, the ethics, the applications. And so I've always found it a fascinating area of study. And so when these calls came up uh, from, let's say, 2015, 2016 onwards, I had already been working on this problem or this set of problems for quite a few years. And I saw an opportunity not only to kind of help uh, the, the general direction of travel, but also to contribute, I feel, what I had been learning about for a longer period of time to maybe students who are just encountering some of the issues for the first time. And so I was drawing on, you know, the publications that I had already done and the, and the PhD research as well. I was also drawing on the groups that had been talking about this problem for a longer time. Now, particularly the global development section of the ISA has been a space where these conversations have been going on for at least 20, 25 years, maybe. And that was a really important space for me in terms of having other people to talk to, because nobody else really, at least in my close circle, was, was doing it. And also to being inspired about the different ways in which you could approach the problem. And so uh, I co-founded um, 
with uh, Robbie Shilliam and Mustafa Pasha, um, both the colonial, post-colonial, decolonial working group of BISA and also a book series in which we would publish work on this issue. So I encountered, if you like, the new upsurge of interest with that background and I wanted to contribute um, some ideas to it. Can you maybe just briefly say what, what role did students um, play in, in this, in pushing this agenda as well? I think certainly over the last five to ten years, students have been really central to the agenda. Two things really have happened. On the one hand, you have, at least in the UK context, um, a place where students pay fees. And so this idea that students are going to be consumers of the product and have some greater right about uh, talking about how it's shaped has become more prominent in higher education. Um, and the other key thing really is that students of color have become much more prominent in lots of these spaces um, because it's been uh, greatly opened up in terms of um, space available. And also because they, there's a generational shift in terms of like thinking about these issues. So for early generations of immigrants, at least to, to Europe, um, I think there was a, although many of them fought hard for for rights i think some um attitudes were also about trying to keep quiet and not invite more discrimination or criticism on on account of being uh, assertive and i think some of that generational effect has worn off with younger generations who were born in uh different countries and feel that they are part of those countries and deserve to have a voice in those conversations so and um Thinking about these, you know, different streams, these different uh, spaces in which these conversations or this awareness has grown and the agenda has formed, what what are what are the core aims, um, both in in general? You already touched on them a little bit, but but also very specifically for the field of international relations. So, what what is it that we're striving towards when we're trying to decolonize knowledge? It's difficult to speak for such a diverse kind of movement as a whole, and I won't really try to say what everybody wants out of this. I would say at its broadest level, it's about saying, look, this way of talking and thinking about the world is dated, it's biased, it's inadequate for the kinds of work we want to do. And so we need to find a different language and a form of language and a form of thinking that doesn't automatically relegate or dispose of different peoples and spaces quite so easily. And so in international relations, we need to think about how the field has embodied and embedded lots of those biases. Um, and there's tons of them in IR from its very genesis up until uh, the present. Of course, it was uh, commonplace during the founding years of IR as a field to think about civilized and uncivilized nations, to think about um, superior nations, to think, to talk explicitly about racial supremacy and racial uh, backwardness. These were all ideas that were very, very common. So even when, you know, international laws and treaties and other things were being founded, they were founded on that basis of inequality on that uh, assumption. And although that has being erased as an explicit form of discourse, you still find lots of ways in which that erasure or that assumption about backwardness has informed IR as a field. Now, part of that is due to its kind of geographic uh, institutional location. It's been heavily embedded in former colonial powers or colonial powers in the US. And the tendency has been to see the rest of the world as a kind of an add-on, right? So they're just extra places. 
They can all get shoved in one week at the end of the syllabus. They can all just be discounted. There are small wars which are of no consequence, even though they might kill millions of people. It's acceptable for us to talk about our security in ways which sacrifice, let's say, Korea or Vietnam or any other space to um, being the playground of the great powers. And it's acceptable for us to pathologize things like war in the Middle East or Africa as being due to the irrationality or the backwardness of the leaders rather than the wider political, economic and social relations that they've had over the longer time, including uh, oil, arms, diplomatic support, coups, all of this stuff which has gone on. Um, but there's been a sort of intellectual distancing. So if you look around an IR, and you know, there's lots of other examples that we can uh, create. If you look around in IR, that kind of mentality, that kind of set of assumptions has been at the heart of the field for a long time. And so we're trying to ask, ask you know, really how we, we think about that again. And uh, once we recognize that there is an issue with, you know, call it Eurocentrism or Western centrism um, in how we think about the world, how we research uh, the world, um, then what do we do? What what are the concrete steps that we have to do to to mm. address this? So um, what does it involve? What are the approaches um, and, and where does it take place? So I would say there's multiple strategies. There's no single strategy. Um, the piece I wrote in 2011 laid out six strategies. I could probably add to them from this vantage point a kind of a decade later. Um, but it's about reconstructing our understanding of the world through trying to see what's really there. And so people are using different languages uh, to examine this. So for example, one uh, discourse which is being used and explored at the moment in post-colonial IR is this idea of racial capitalism. So it's about looking at the ways in which the global political economy has depended on a hierarchy of humanity and how the idea and the material of those two elements are intertwined and how they produce the terrain, let's say, on which the rest of the stuff uh, plays out, not just in the South or, you know, uh, in far off places, but also within the North itself. So, you know, Ida Danowitz's um, article, recent article on uh, the Grenfell Tower fire explores that inside London itself um, in a really interesting way. And then we can try and kind of reconstruct or find ways to use theories which try not to reproduce those um, biases. Uh, so, for example, Robbie Shilliam's work has done a lot on anti-colonial solidarities. So not just imagining, let's say, the West as a site of cosmopolitan uh, glo globalism, but looking at, let's say, South-South or South-South uh, relations or relations between racially marginalized peoples as a form of internationalism. And, and can I just, uh, just uh, to come in here to ask... There's, isn't there a, a question also to what extent you can theorize um, a sort of decolonial uh, approach or to what extent theory can be useful and to what extent you have to do empirical um, work outside uh, of, of Western spaces uh, without uh, biases? Um, so can you say something about, you know, to what extent theory and to what extent empirical research is, is the better approach? I think they're both very useful. I mean, I am certainly someone who thinks of themselves as doing both. Um, and there's a lot of great uh, decolonial theory uh, out there, which is about the critical examination and reorganization of 
ideas about the world. It's examining um, cultures and ideologies and, you know, uh, canonical work. And empirical work um, can be done which serves other purposes. So people have been studying, let's say they've been studying social movements and they've been studying through struggle from the bottom up. So rather than from the point of view of governments or policymakers, they've um, you know, kind of sat with indigenous groups or campaign groups that have been fighting, let's say, mining extraction or deforestation. And they've been looking at it in that way. Um, but I don't believe very strongly in a theory empirics divide in the sense that I think, you know, um, we use theory as a tool to apprehend what is going on, but it's never it's never bereft of context. It's possible to do uh, decolonial work using particular different ideas, which in other contexts might be colonizing in their in their effects. So a lot depends on how and how you're using that mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so would you would you say it's a, both a process of unlearning and relearning and, and uh, both in terms of theories and how we do research uh, and field work and gather our empirical data. But how, how to, to what extent is this an approach that suggests that we need to find voices that have been neglected and thus are coming closer to what's really out there? So is there... Is there a maybe implicit agenda to saying that there is a link between decolonizing knowledge and getting closer to truth? I would say there's a link between decolonizing knowledge and democratizing knowledge. And to the extent that, and I buy to some extent into Sandra Harding's idea of strong, strong objectivity, which suggests that when you take in the standpoints of the most marginalized, then you learn more about a situation than when you exclude them. So I know not everybody subscribes to that idea and some people um, have a different approach to social sciences, but I think that those two things are consistent, right? So the idea that more knowledge and more knowledge from different positionalities, particularly different disempowered positionalities is critical to improving our knowledge. I don't know whether that fits in with a more abstract conversation about truth or the truth, um, because, of, you know, as we've known for so long, uh, all social truths are contested. But do we have enough knowledge and are we, do we share it widely enough to come to a more humane consensus about what is going on in a specific space? Mm -hmm. And uh, and how, how important is reflexivity in this? Can can you decolonize um, knowledge without without a strong commitment to reflexivity? I mean, obviously not. So on the one hand, what the decolonizing campaign is calling for, amongst other things, is reflexivity, right? And it's calling for it both as a claim on Western knowledge's own conception of itself as being reflexive, right? But also as a claim for uh, being aware of those limits that create a form of exclusion or in some cases even violence, right, through the discounting of others. So reflexivity is important. However, this is where things get a bit more difficult and they become more, um, let's say, they become more strategic or political, right? Because how and where you demand reflexivity of people under what conditions um, can be itself a kind of disempowering move. So if a group has decided to put aside its differences and, and push for something um, because it's important to them in common, And 
at that moment you ask them to reflect on their differences and their different positionalities. What you're doing is actually uh, demobilizing that group. You're disempowering them. So the choices about how and where you demand reflexivity of different people, I think, are important in the context of what that demand does at that particular time. So I've seen, let's say, in this decolonizing work, um, an interesting relationship between students and institutions. And students, of course, when they're in campaigning mode or in, in polemical mode, they're not being totally reflexive because they're making a demand for something, they're pressing for something. And a lot of academics have come back with, well, why aren't you being more reflexive about this thing? Sometimes not understanding that that is not the specific moment at which to cultivate reflexivity. Maybe that's the moment at which to really listen to the demand. But I think this is why to do this work effectively, you need spaces in which people can also reflect and exercise reflexivity and that can inform their actions. But where the demand for reflexivity is used to just demobilize people, I'm less impressed with it. Yes, I, I, I hear you um, teasing out, you know, the tension between being on the one hand a critical reflexive academic and on the one hand an activist. Um, and uh, just to just to check with you whether the, the shared ground, however, and you know, going back to this question of the aim, there, there is an ethical normative agenda here, right? Like that that is that is mm -hmm. very central to to decolonizing knowledge. Yes. The ethical agenda can be lots of different things, but I like Césaire's formulation. So Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism was a big polemic written in the 1950s, um, and he uh, decried European humanism for not really being humanism. And he said, we need a humanism made to the measure of the world, right? Not this partial, limited humanism. So for me, that's a kind of broad guideline to the ethics of decolonization or de you know trying to decolonize knowledge in IR or whatever like we need a way of studying that is adequate or tries to be more adequate to the demands of what we think of as actually a big big field of humanity and um, if I could come back to the question of spaces and the concrete steps and you know I referred earlier um, to this uh, toolkit that you co-produced so can you say a little bit more about where and how you see this agenda playing out in the classroom, in teaching practices? It plays out in different ways in different spaces. And I think a lot depends on variables that are at the very micro level, how interested a teacher is in it, maybe whether they've had encounters with students that have been particularly inspiring or not, uh, whether their institution is supportive, whether they've had exposure to literatures which help them understand what's going on, um, And and or, you know, chilling effects the other way. So you've got Florida Governor Ron DeSantis threatening to essentially ban gender studies and critical race theory uh, from from Florida kind of institutions or effectively kind of uh, demote them. So all of these factors will play out in terms of how somebody takes this forward. What the toolkit was supposed to do was to basically give a, a broad set of guidelines uh, to help somebody who didn't know what any of it was about, uh, but who, who was responsible for teaching. And it set out what some of the key assumptions or beliefs were behind the people kind of um, wanting to see this moved forward and asked a set of practical questions for teachers to think about their own courses and their own classrooms. Did these 
patterns or tendencies manifest themselves? Who did they imagine were their students, right? What kinds of assumptions did they make about their lives? Did they think that because a student was quiet that they were simply lacking confidence? And in doing so, we tried to raise people's awareness of those dynamics, those inequalities, and how they might affect students and teachers differently. Um, and we had case studies from colleagues who had tried different things with their classrooms. Um, and the things that ended up being, and you know, people said about the toolkit, isn't this just good teaching practice in general? What is decolonial about this? And so partly, yes, it is good teaching practice in general if you take seriously the idea that you have a you have a um, relationship and an obligation to your students to to meet them at least partway where they are. But a lot of those awarenesses we've seen so often um, are coloured by racial bias. I mean, the studies on racial bias are really surprising, and they've done so many little experiments to to check for implicit bias or unconscious bias. And these are not the only things. And then, of course, you have all of the structural factors. Um, such as impoverishment but from little things like you know black kids going to A&E are getting less painkillers than white kids and like and you see a figure like that and you just think what is going on here it's not that the doctors have these you know active memberships of the KKK but something is happening here where you see this person as less or less deserving or tougher or you know and these are children these are young people um and I remembered you know things from my own um family where I think my father was quite a confident man but in white spaces he would be much more reserved and that was because he feared being uh, made foolish you know as a person of color because that would have a specific kind of valence to it that it wouldn't in his own in his own kind of family and I can see that pattern has like played out in in different classrooms as well where students if they're already feeling discriminated against or or stereotyped in some way they don't want to open their mouths and like play up to that and so there's all kinds of things going on that the toolkit highlighted and offers concrete steps for teachers to to think about and maybe change the way they they teach um and design uh their courses right um now how do we measure progress how do we know uh whether there has been um, an effect, an impact, and maybe we've become better in not only understanding the biases and silences, but in addressing them effectively. How do we? How do we know? I mean, maybe progress isn't the right the right way to think about it, but I don't have a better word for it right now. <laughs> um, we can see change. I mean, we have been seeing change in a lot of different spaces. We can see. I mean, everyone looks at reading lists because they're something that you can physically look at. Right. And so you see these becoming more interesting, more diverse, maybe having more diverse topics on them. You see textbooks now foregrounding rather than backgrounding the issue. You see work in this area being published in journals that previously wouldn't have published them. You can see um, people wh whose scholarship is in this area being very senior in the field. And so there are, there are signs all around. That doesn't mean that some kind of systemic transformation has taken place. I mean, for me, I think what would be a big signal of real change is embedding these in the sort of required graduate training aspects of um, PhD programs and so on. Because for me, at least, 
if you sidestep this issue, you've just missed something really fundamental to studying international relations. And we shouldn't be in a field where people can do that, right? Anthropologists, for better or worse, have to confront this issue at the very kind of ground zero of doing anthropology. And just because IR people are not kind of always going out into, let's say, do empirical work in the global south, doesn't mean that they have a lesser responsibility to confront these issues because they're writing about peoples and places or not writing about peoples and places in ways that just reproduce them. So I would say any ser intellectually serious institution would need to would need to include this as they need to include gender and class and all these other things which we think are just um, easy to relegate. So, so in that sense, it is it is a, the importance um, of understanding the world as and not only incredibly big and complex place, but um, of also maybe some of our inabilities to speak for some places that we don't really know much about or don't have the experience of living in. Um, and that, I guess, is, if I hear you correctly, a particularly important task for scholars of international relations, given that we claim to speak for the world as such, right? And and that, that makes mm. it even more important. And so moving on from that... Um, I mean, is it is it possible then to to think about knowledge that has been decolonized? I mean, can we can we actually say, to put it very crudely, you know, we have kind of a, a checkbox um, and say, fine, your reading list or or your research um, has been decolonized. Fine, uh, you 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 can move <laughs> on. You pass the test. Is that actually possible? No, I mean, of course not. Uh, we can't just kind of tick a box and of course say knowledge is decolonized you know we're not using a particular set of words anymore we're not using a particular theory and therefore the job is done uh, and that's for several reasons the first is of course that knowledge itself can be used in lots of different ways it's a tool and so you know concepts like human rights and democracy have been used to liberate people um, from all kinds of oppression including colonial oppression they've also been used to bomb people and to subjugate them and to kind of deny their uh, self-representation so in that sense there's no kind of single set of words or ideas or concepts that we can excise and therefore get rid of the problem i would say it's about a spirit of analysis and it's a sort of ethos and an orientation that you keep practicing um, and you have to remain aware of not least because the kinds of tendencies that we're talking about, I mean, power in general um, and colonial power in particular are very prominent tendencies of modernity, right? And so the desire to dominate or to exploit or to dehumanize are things that come up again and again in politics. And so we're never going to get to a place where the forms of knowledge produced in centers of power are completely aligned with the disempowered, right? That's not going to happen. But um, what we might be able to do is ensure that enough people who are in those centers of power, who have the right to vote and to think and to speak and to contribute to the discussion, are aware enough of these problems, such as to change the conversation and to make space for others. And this, this applies, I think, really to everybody. This gives everybody a language to think about what these tendencies look like, how they work, and how they might reproduce themselves in spaces which we otherwise think are not subject to those dynamics. And while, of course, you know, we would like to think that 
both from a normative or ethical point of view, this is an agenda that is embraced by especially academics um, who are interested in, in sort of producing critical and, and useful knowledge. But there are challenges. Um, there is resistance also to this agenda. Can you maybe talk us through some of these, both maybe the risks, but also the, the key challenges that, that one faces, both maybe on a very personal level, but also on a more institutional level? The key challenges that have been faced can be disaggregated into different kinds of things. So one is a set of vested interests in just keeping things the way they are. So the theories that are already prominent and powerful remaining prominent and powerful. And the, you know, the grand scholars who are in those spaces being, staying there essentially. It was very interesting when I was trying to get my piece on whiteness in IR theory published. I mean, some of the reviews I had were extraordinary and some of the journals that I sent it to treated it with, you know, real kind of, um, trepidation let's say um, and it those those kinds of responses show you that there is still a kind of status quo resistance a sort of a fragility or an anxiety about being dislodged or disrupted so that's one set of barriers um, there's a material set of barriers which is of course that uh, uh, a lot of work follows funding and security and all of these things and especially with the number of the governments in power their agendas do not prioritize and then sometimes are actively hostile to this kind of work others less so you know people are finding funding for interesting projects so that's not an exclusive uh, story um and then yeah other kinds of barriers will depend on context but it depends what you think, again, maybe what you think progress is or what you think meaningful change looks like. I hope I'm not like super deluded about what at least I or the people around me can achieve. Like we can we can dream big and we can express those dreams in writing and communicate them widely and talk to other people who have similar perspectives. But the work of change in any particular institution or context uh, takes a lot of individual and collective effort. and. One of the other big things is, of course, in academic spaces, the space for that effort, the space for those conversations is jostling with the billion other demands on academics time as workload pressures increase and, you know, um, people have to live further away from the spaces that they work. And so, you know, they commute. And, and so all of that space where you might cultivate a collective project and think together and breathe and take the time to reform your program or your syllabus doesn't often exist. And so, you know, colleagues might even just say, great, it's a great idea. I have not got time. I'm going to give the same course I did last time, or I'm going to change a couple of readings, but I really can't rethink this from the ground up because nobody is paying me to do this work. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, that we, we raised in our own conversations at, at SOAS that, um, that the work of redoing a course or, you know, remaking assessment had to be recognized in as workload um, and the university I think for a time was keen to resource that but has increasingly been much less keen to. So so there's there's a practical aspect to it um, but I think it is important to also notice that you know it is a critical approach to to established um, uh, truths if we can use that or to, to knowledge that you know academics um, and others have become used to and accepted 
Um, and it's quite uncomfortable to question that and mm. to, to move away from that and maybe to be told that what we have done for the last 10, 20 years um, is um, problematic. So it requires accepting, inviting maybe even a certain discomfort, uh, moving out of the you know the the security of 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 your own knowledge and and be challenged and allow new ways of thinking, and I think that for some academics may also be a problem, even though we don't want to admit that. Um, well, I mean, we can see a, a lot of epistemological revolutions have happened over the last. 50, 60 years, um, you know, with post-structuralism and these kinds of phenomena, these have radically changed the way we think about science, objectivity, truth, perspective, um, discourse, language. And so, I mean, this is, this is a specific kind of epistemological challenge that asks us to think about the humanness of those on which we pronounce. But in that sense, it's not so radically different from shifts that have already taken place. Yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe I, I'm not quite sure whether we um, framed it in this way or whether you discussed it in this way, but it, Eurocentrism and challenging Eurocentrism in a sort of Western-dominated perspective is one of the core um, features of decolonizing knowledge. But is this a problem if it is just focused on knowledge produced in and by Western academics or in Western institutions? In other words, should we not also be thinking of decolonizing knowledge agenda as um maybe even having a universal dimension that is important also mm. outside Western um, spaces? Oh, for sure. I mean, so there's two things. So one, at least as I have tried to work with the category, um, the West is not always, let's say, about a geographical space or an institutional space. It's also about that hyper-real, imaginative object in discourse. So you can be Eurocentric, but be writing in an African university if you're reproducing those stereotypes and those tropes and those areas of interest. Now, it would be a little weird because you'd probably experience much more, many more challenges to that process, but it's still possible, you know, and um, uh, particularly African universities, one of the things that's come out in those conversations is that they've been under pressure to emulate and mimic uh, institutions in the global north to be seen as better institutions, right? So their perception of quality is bound up to some extent in reproducing Eurocentrism. But in answer to your question, um, yes, I mean, so one of the things that we've seen is, particularly in India, this critique of Eurocentrism used to buttress a virulent form of anti-Muslim nationalism, right? And to sort of develop a kind of Hindu supremacist discourse um, and to call it even in some cases a kind of a decolonizing or an anti-Eurocentric approach, but it is incredibly chauvinistic and incredibly um, violent in many of its expressions. So this awareness of not just Eurocentrism, but all forms of um, culturally chauvinistic knowledge is, is a very useful tool and it comes out of this agenda. That said, it's also impossible to just say, well, Eurocentrism is just like any other form of cultural chauvinism because of the power historically that the West has had in shaping the modern world, its financial systems, its legal systems, and so on, and the power it continues to have in so many of those uh, spaces. And so there is a potency to Eurocentrism that, say, Sinocentrism has not yet achieved, at least you know, in many spaces outside 
China. And so then my my last question, maybe to link on to that, is a question about the importance of history or historical knowledge. Um, if a decolonizing knowledge agenda has to engage with and understand his colonial legacies, you know, historical structures of domination, subjugation, oppression, and silencing, and so forth. Um, do we need to expect from IR scholars or from anyone involved in this agenda or wanting to be uh, making progress, if I, again I could use that, that, that term, to actually have a greater historical awareness of where knowledge comes from, which you know adds another layer um, of expectation and of learning to, to our task? I think absolutely yes. I mean, I think the issue is one of the, one of the big issues with the organization of the world into social sciences. And you know, Emmanuel Wallerstein made this argument already. Is that you know we just try and cut it up in ways which don't reflect reality, and and we make ourselves a lot stupider by just becoming specialists in one tiny sub area when, of course, so many others are very relevant. And um, And so I think, you know, the best scholarship is produced by people who take all of these things seriously. They take histories and geographies and anthropologies and literature and, you know, sort of Edward Said's of the world. Um, yes, they specialize in kind of one area, but they're informed by so much. Um, so it is a big demand. And again, one of the problems of, I guess, contemporary neoliberalism is it, it narrows you further and further into a little slot so you can make your little point and make it in a time frame which is countable for the ref and all of these kinds of things. So um, that is antagonistic to really broadening the mind because being a specialist pays off. Um, but being broader helps you do the work with more depth and integrity. And that's kind of what we lose when we when we say, oh, well, you know, history is not that important, or I just specialize in this little thing. Thank you, uh, Mira. I think um, this this uh, is a really good point to end, and it, it reminds us that it, it is an important ethical and normative project to decolonize knowledge, but it is it is much more than that, and, and it requires not just reflexivity, it requires also a, a commitment to maybe multidisciplinarity um, to inviting discomfort, thinking out of the box and listening um, to others that one may not have listened to before. So uh, on that note, thank you for um, joining us. Thank you for sharing your insights um, and uh, good luck for uh, your future engagement in this very important um, agenda. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.